You know, the darkest and most desperate moments in life, at least I've found, have often provided the brightest and most uplifting opportunities to give God the highest and most deserving of praise. Our last stop in our Summer in the Psalms series is uniquely special and quite meaningful to me personally. Psalm 34 is our family psalm. In one of the darkest and most intense and most vulnerable moments of our lives, the Lord used this particular psalm to speak words of hope and steadfast grace to my and my family's souls. Here we hear David say, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. And but a few verses later, David pivots and he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Brothers and sisters, it gets no better than that. Psalm 34 is a masterful poem. It is a piece of artwork. Psalm 34 is actually an acrostic poem, one of nine such acrostic poems in the Psalter. An acrostic poem, of course, is a psalm that we might uh, start each line with A, B, C, D, each letter of the alphabet. In the Hebrew uh, alphabet, there are 22 consonants, and Psalm 34 is one of nine psalms that, in a very beautiful and even memorable way, describes uh, eternal truth with each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Something neat to look into on your own time. But it's also David's song of personal praise. This is an intensely personal yet public anthem of worship. It's David's song of personal praise and thanksgiving to a faithful and forever gracious God who cares about us and is able to deliver us out of every kind of affliction. Yeah, God was even sovereign over this psalm being today's psalm. I'll say this later in the message, but Peter, the apostle, loved Psalm 34. Psalm thir- psalm, sorry, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Psalm 34 this morning shows us several things. First, it reminds us that while God's people are not always hidden or shielded from difficulties, as we look to Him, we are always preserved through them. We are always delivered from them. The promise of the gospel is not merely the absence of trouble, but rather the gracious promise of God's presence in the midst of our trouble. Secondly, Psalm 34 instructs us on the great implications of what it truly means to fear the Lord. What it means to fear the Lord. This psalm contains wisdom for those who desire to walk humbly and to be holy and to honor the Lord in all that they say and do. This is a song of great praise, but it's also a wisdom psalm. Thirdly, David's hymn of personal praise for God's faithful deliverance, supremely points us to the gospel and to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose own death and burial and resurrection are alluded to specifically in verses 19 to 22 of our psalm. 
the Lord Jesus left his exalted status as king to endure many earthly afflictions for you and me. And as John's gospel notes at the time of his death, John 19 verse 36, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled that not one of his bones were broken. A direct citation of Psalm 34 verse 20. Listen, Jesus, the consummate man of sorrows, was delivered out of his afflictions that he might deliver us out of our afflictions. And finally and fittingly today, Psalm 34 encourages us. Even it invites us with hope that every single one of our personal, private circumstances, even the most insane and desperate ones, can be turned into an amazing platform and occasion for God's great praise. Today's perils can be tomorrow's pearls. Reflecting the power and faithfulness of God as we invite and summon others to share in the savoring of the grace and goodness of Almighty God. Taste and see what he's done for me, David says. We could sing by faith Psalm 34, 1 to 3, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Helen Steiner Rice, a famous 20th century American Christian poet, once wrote these words. Trouble is something no one can escape. Everyone has it in some form or shape. Some people hide it way down inside. Some people bear it with gallant-like pride. Some people worry and complain of their lot. Some people covet what they haven't got. While others rebel and become bitter and old with hopes that are dead and hearts that are cold. But the wise person accepts what God sends, willing to yield like a storm-tossed tree bends, knowing that God never makes a mistake, so whatever God sends, they are willing to take. For trouble is part and parcel of life, for no one can grow without trouble and strife. And the steep hills ahead and high mountain peaks afford us at last the peace that we seek. So blessed are the people who learn to accept the trouble many try to escape and reject. For in our acceptance we are given great grace and courage and faith and the strength to face the daily troubles that come to us all, so we may learn to stand straight and tall. For the grandeur of life is born of defeat, for in overcoming we make life complete. Helen Steiner Rice and her poem, Trouble is a Stepping Stone to Growth. Well, the Prince of Preachers, of course, I'm referring to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I'm told, said of Psalm 34, that the first 10 verses of this psalm contain a precious hymn, and the last 12 verses contain a powerful sermon, a hymn and a sermon, the two halves of Psalm 34, with the dividing line I want you to see falling between verses 10 and 11, respectively. By the way, 
Psalm 34 is one of 73 psalms of David that we have in the Bible. 73. The sweet singer of Israel, indeed, he was. Nearly half of all the psalms written by King David. Jim Boyce notes that about 14 of these psalms are specifically situated or linked to, a, to some specific occasion in David's life. And such is the case with Psalm 34. You'll notice at the header or the superscription of this psalm, we read of David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. We'll have a few words about those circumstances in just a few moments. But for now, the point here is simply that I want you to notice that David's praise, Psalm 34, 1 to 3, and David's personal appeal for others to taste and see the Lord is good, Psalm 34, 8 to 10, is actually anchored in David's own experience and testimony of God's grace and deliverance, Psalm 34, verses 4 through 7. In fact, the troubles and trials that lay behind David's testimony were transformational trials, quite literally. Now, what exactly do I mean? Well, in order to really understand David's great pleasure and purpose in magnifying the Lord publicly and audibly, I think we need to look back upon his incredible story and to some strange occasion when he went mad before King Achish the Philistine Lord. Again, folks, the math of God's mercy in the gospel teaches us the following equation, that our pain plus God's gracious rescue equals great praise and thanksgiving. God is mercy, mercy, God's mercy is magnified in our weakness. That's what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. His grace is sufficient for me. For my power is made perfect, Jesus says to Paul, in your weakness. So, to me, the best entry point for this psalm is actually verses 4 through 7. Would you look there with me this morning? And David's allusion to his own personal experience of God's rescuing grace and deliverance. Again, we hear David declare, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Notice that phrase. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of, notice, all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. You see, and this is hugely significant for us to note David's exalted celebration of God's mighty deliverance actually begins in the dim light of a cave. Of a cave. The cave of Adullam. Jim Boyce helpfully points out that David might have been hiding in a dismal cave, but his heart was hiding in the Lord. His heart was hiding in the Lord. Let me explain. It might be helpful for you to turn back with me, if you would, right now to the book of 1 Samuel, several pages, even several books back into the Old Testament to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And perhaps for those of you who are less familiar with the Bible and David's incredible story, let me just set the scene for you. The first mention of David in the Bible is actually a few chapters prior to this in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 
1 Samuel 16, verse 13, we read these words, Then Samuel, and Samuel, of course, is God's prophet and the last of the judges of Israel. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David. Yes, David the last, and David the youngest, and therefore David the least of all of Jesse's sons. Samuel anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and we are told the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel comes to Jesse's farm, and Jesse brings out his son, starting from the oldest and the tallest, and nope, not this one, nope, not that one. And finally, David is called from the field, and Samuel says, yep, that's God's man. That's God's man. You see, at this point, King Saul, Israel's first king, has already been rejected by the Lord for his breach of faith with Almighty God. Saul stepped out of his lane and suffered the consequences for it. Israel's next king, lowly young King David, coming right from the field, keeping his father's flock, has been anointed by God's prophet Samuel in his place. And then in the very next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 17 now, we read of David's famous visit to his brothers who are off to war with the Philistines. David goes to check on them and to bring cheese to them. You've got to love the details that the Bible includes. They, there they are, David's brothers and really the entire army of Israel, cowering in fear before the fearful champion of the Philistines of Gath, a nine-foot-tall giant named Goliath. David has quickly had his fill of this uncircumcised brute, and he challenges to a bare-knuckle brawl, challenges him to that brawl. Against all odds, but not surprisingly with God, David kills Goliath with just a flick of his swing, his, his sling. Whap! Right between the eyes flies that one small smooth stone. Israel won, Philistia nothing. War is over, David wins, but more importantly, Israel wins and God wins. David's just an instrument. God is the champion. David then takes Goliath's large sword and cuts off the giant's head and wraps it up to go and carries it back to his camp. And here's where things head south. Pardon the pun. That's a laugh line, guys. <laughs> Remember Saul, King Saul. Well, Saul brings David into his personal service, and David then instantly becomes besties with Saul's son, Jonathan. However, Saul soon can't stand David's popularity and the praise that he receives, not only from his house, but from the people of Israel. For instance, we read in 1 Samuel 18, verse 6 and following, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And notice what they sang. The women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul, we're told, was very angry. 
And this saying displeased him. And he said, now they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul's no fool. Verse 9 says, and Saul eyed David from that day forward. Note that line. Now things really escalate quickly after David wins yet another successive skirmish with the Philistines just months later perhaps, and then returns to Saul's house. The Bible says in chapter 19 now of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 19, 9 and 10, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, Saul and he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. Notice the spear. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. Notice, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul is prone to temper tantrums, we find, in these particular scenes. David's brief day in the sun is done. Things aren't going back to as they were before. He flees Saul's house for Samuel's shelter in the city of Ramah. And then, only a short time later, Saul's informants discover David's whereabouts, and Saul finds out where he is. In a last-ditch effort to save their relationship, Jonathan goes to patch things up between dad and David. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 33 now, but Saul hurled his spear, his spear at him, that is, at his own son, Jonathan, to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. You think, Jonathan? Um, And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Jonathan famously meets with David secretly and confirms Saul's murderous intentions and sends David away in safety. Air quotes, you need to notice. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. You see, 1 Samuel chapter 21, the background behind Psalm 34 shows us David at his lowest. David is friendless. He's away from his best friend, Jonathan. He's homeless. We find him in a cave. He's hungry. We'll look at that in just a moment, a bit earlier. He's even defenseless at this time. David at his lowest. All of this is vital information that we need to carry forward with us when we read Psalm 34. Here in 1 Samuel 21, we're told that David heads down to Nob. It's a city. Aren't you glad you're not from Nob? Where he's given some of the holy bread, the consecrated bread of the Lord to eat by Ahimelech, the priest of Nob. In fact, David is even given, and this is, I think, significant. The scripture notes this, the only weapon available in the area. It happened to be the sword of Goliath, the very sword David used to cut off his head. 1 Samuel 21, 9, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. And here's what we read next, 1 Samuel 21, 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, the header of Psalm 34 says that David fled before Abimelech. Scholars have noted that 
Of course, according to 1 Samuel 21, it's Achish who is the king of Gath. Abimelech might more properly be understood as a dynastic title, a title applied to many of the Philistine lords over periods of years. So it's not that the scriptures are wrong here. This is a, a title when we read of Abimelech. It simply means my father is king, and that would have been a very understandable moniker or title, much like Pharaoh was in the Bible. But notice, importantly, that David's run, David runs from the hand of one enemy, King Saul of Israel, straight into the arms of a former enemy, Achish, the king of Philistia, who lived, where? In Gath, guys. Where was Goliath from? He was from Gath. And, by the way, what is David carrying with him as he approaches the city of Gath? Goliath's sword. Probably not a little pocket knife. Probably not. What on earth was he thinking? Well, he may have simply been thinking, at least I'm now out of Saul's reach. He wouldn't even fight the Philistines the first time. He's certainly not going to come and try to get me away from them now. But then what about Achish and the rest of the Philistine family members who have been orphaned and widowed at David's hand in battle? Guys, tell me the Bible's not a captivating book with the details that it includes. The author of Samuel tells us, 1 Samuel 21, 11, And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of Israel, or the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. It's sort of hard to imagine Achish not knowing David's appearance, but he probably wasn't at the battle for the people of the, of the Philistines. So he might not have known who David was. But David knows he's in deep, deep trouble at this point. Verse 12 of 1 Samuel 21, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. How on earth is young David going to squirm his way out of this one? He's caught between literally a rock, Saul, and a hard place, the Philistines, and Achish in particular. I just want to camp here for just a moment. I wonder if you've been there. I wonder if you've ever been caught between a rock and a hard place. You're running for your life. You're running for your relationship. You're, you're running for peace. Some issue of of sexual sin has happened, some issue of bankruptcy has happened, some fissure in a relationship has happened, and you don't know where you're going to turn. You are at the end of your rope. You are hunkered down in a cave, and you are desperate for deliverance. I wonder if you've ever been there. I know I have. I've been there. God... If I'm going to be delivered, if there's any possible hope of rescuing what I've ruined, it's up to you. I'm desperate for you. Allison, on the bright side, we obviously know that David squeaks out of this particular situation. He wrote Psalm 34 and he wrote Psalm 57, by the way, which also alludes to that same circumstance and scene in his life. But how, oh how, does David Copperfield his way out of this one? Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You guys are learning. Good. 
Well, listen, just when you think his situation could not possibly get any worse, David's life could not possibly go any lower, we read these remarkable words. 1 Samuel 21, 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Going from, in, from insult to injury. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Flip on to the next chapter, chapter 22, verse 1. David departed from there. We don't know exactly how, but maybe they just said, Get out of here, madman. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And notice very carefully. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And there was with him about 400 men. Do not rush past that scene. Misery loves company. David had been through it, friends. He had lost his fans. He had lost his friends. He had lost his family. He even lacked the basic provisions of food and weapons. David had been through it. David had exchanged one dangerous relationship with Saul for yet another one with the Philistines. And now he found himself holed up in a dark cave on the outskirts of enemy territory, surrounded by his brothers who had despised him, and a cast of high school dropouts, debtors, and deviants numbering about 400 men in all. And remember who David is. He is God's anointed the next king of Israel. So whenever you feel like your circumstances don't rise to your status as God's child, remember David. But more importantly, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Because he left the glories of heaven to walk the dirty roads of earth. He didn't think it was beneath him, friends. And praise God for it. By the way, do you know what the name Adullam means in Hebrew? It means refuge. David was in a cave of refuge. The Bible says in Proverbs 18 verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Do you know what it's like to reside in the refuge? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that no temptation or trial has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God's sovereignty encompasses the trials, but it includes the caves of refuge and deliverance. David was in a cave, safe at least for the moment behind enemy lines and out of Saul's maniacal reach. 
But understand that the cave wasn't David's refuge. God was. God was his refuge. I want to remind each of us of something stunningly beautiful. The gospel says that Christ is our cave. Christ is our cave. The Lord Jesus is our refuge amid the storms and insane trials of life. That Christ the King came to earth and entered into our cave to be our refuge and to give us rest even there. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight to 30 says, Come to me. Remember David with all of this cast of debtors and deviants? coming and flooding to him. David is simply prefiguring Christ there, friends. Christ says, come to me, you who don't have it together. You who are at your wit's end, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You are not alone in the cave. You are in Christ alone, who is the cave. John 16, 33 says, Christ says this to his disciples moments before his crucifixion. I have said these things to you that in me you may have what? Peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jim Boyce said that Psalm 34 is a psalm for poor men. And here's the thing. Until you realize your poverty, you can't embrace this gift. Psalm 34 is a psalm for poor men and poor women, Boyce says. It is a psalm for all who are alone and destitute. It is for you if you have nothing at all or are not even sure that you will live long. It is for people who find themselves at the absolute low point in life which is where David was, or find themselves between a rock and a hard place when everyone and everything seems to be against you. Christ is for you. In times of trouble and when you're in need of deliverance, remember that if God is for us, what does Paul say in Romans 8? Who could stand against us? Romans 8, 32, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friend, remember with the likes of Noah that the man finding grace, that one man finding grace in the eyes of the Lord, even when the rest of the world despises and hates God and ridicules you for believing in God, is able to be delivered by faith from a flood of God's judgment. Stand with Noah. Christ is for us. Remember, friends, with Elisha and that worried servant of his in Dothan, that even when the city is surrounded by hostile forces and they're intent on your destruction and you think you're way outnumbered, that the eyes of the Spirit help you understand that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 2 Kings 6, verse 16. You are never outnumbered when you stand with God. Christ is with us. Remember with the righteous prophet Daniel that when you are persecuted and that persecution gets you thrown into the lion's den and you fear that you will not survive the night. Remember Psalm 34, 7, that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him 
and he delivers them. That Christ is around us. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Friend, I'd rather be in the furnace of affliction with the Lord than seated in royal places and great company without him. St. Patrick of the 5th century, the great saint of Ireland, has a beautiful prayer. I'll just read a section of it. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ at my right hand and Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down and Christ when I sit down, Christ when I rise and Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. We are only hopeless when we are forgetful that Christ is with us. Praise without suffering is very shallow. Praise without the experience of God's abiding presence and powerful deliverance, even through strange and unconventional means, is often fleeting. It is easy to praise God on the mountain. It is much harder to praise God in the valley. Those who rely upon the Lord in the fire and those who meet with God in the cave of his merciful refuge emerge with a new grasp of his grace and a new song to sing to others. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. That's a glorious hymn in the first 10 verses. An entire sermon could and probably should be devoted to the sermon that follows in the next 12 verses. But today I just want to press home a few points of application by using David's sermon to understand how we can live out David's praise. What are the lessons that he learned in the cave? which is Christ? What are the lessons that we learn when we stand by faith in his refuge? What are the truths that transform us from the insanity of our sin to the sameness of our salvation when we come to place our trust and our faith in Christ? Notice what David says in Psalm 34, 11 and following. Come, O children, and listen to me. Great way to start a sermon. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Notice verse 12. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? The very anthem and ache of each heart. Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, just as God did with Joseph, Hebrews 11, verse 22. 
Not one of them is broken, just as it was with Jesus at the cross. Not one of his bones was lost or broken. John 19, verse 36. Verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, that's a good sermon right there. What is he saying? David equates desiring life with the fear of the Lord. If you desire life, you will learn what it means to fear the Lord. Instead of fearing man or feigning amid hard circumstances, the man or woman of faith learns the fear of the Lord and leans into obedience in Christ. He or she is a person of action and obedience through dependence upon Almighty God. Notice what they learn. Four things I want to show you. Number one, those who fear the Lord learn that you lack no good thing. Those who fear the Lord learn that they truly lack nothing. Notice verses 9 and 10. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer and want, uh, suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Why does a young lion suffer want and hunger? Perhaps out of an understanding where the food is? Certainly not out of a lack of energy to go get the food. The instincts to feed oneself are mighty strong in the animal kingdom. David wants us to learn that when we learn the fear of the Lord, we learn our sufficiency in God. We learn that we lack nothing from his grace and from his goodness. That if, if all we have is Christ, as we sung this morning, we have everything that matters. Have you learned that Jesus is enough, that he's your sufficiency, that when you face times of emptiness or barrenness or times of bitterness, that, that Jesus is sufficient for you. Notice, secondly, that David instructs us that those who fear the Lord learn to walk in righteousness both before God and man. You think coming to church is all God cares about, you're wrong. Holiness should follow you right out the door. We are to come as holy ones set apart from the world in rapturous worship. And then we are sent, and that's what September is going to be about. We are sent to be holy ones out those doors for the glory of God. Those who fear the Lord learn to walk in righteousness both before God and before others. Notice verses 13 and 14. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. These are practical instructions. Very, very practical for us. Again, I think Psalm 34, I mentioned this earlier. I think Psalm 34 was very much on the Apostle Peter's mind when he wrote 1 Peter. In the middle of the the 60s AD, 30 or so years after Jesus' crucifixion, Peter is writing to scattered Christians And he cites in verse chapter 2, verse 3, taste and see that the Lord is good. And in chapter 3, verses 10 to 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter actually repeats a section of Psalm 34, an entire section in his letter. Let's just take a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Peter, I'm going to start in verse 8. 
Finally, all of you be of unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Notice verse 10. This is where the quotation from Psalm 34 comes in. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter was captivated by God's power and his promise of deliverance in the midst of his own Christian trials. And he cites this glorious text. You lack nothing. You are to walk in righteousness before God and others. Notice thirdly, those who fear the Lord learn to depend upon God in prayer. Notice these next verses, verses 15 and 16 and also 17 and 18. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God has not forsaken you. And we know that because of his promises, but also because we serve a risen Savior. When he cried, the Father heard, and he delivered him, the man of sorrows, the man of affliction, out of all of his trials and tribulations. Notice fourthly and finally, those who fear the Lord learn to fix their hope upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who fear the Lord learn to fix their hope eternally upon the resurrection of King Jesus. Verses 19 to 22 of Psalm 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. If you can't see the gospel in these verses, you might not know the gospel. In fact, Joseph's bones were taken out of Egypt, out of faith. Jesus' bones were not broken out of fulfillment on the cross. Earthly affliction does three needful things for us. First, affliction met with mercy trains our taste buds to savor the sweetness of God's eternal grace. Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We don't taste Christ's sweetness because we are so occupied with eating the candy of earth. Taste and see that God is good. And the world's taste will fade away. Secondly, affliction met with the kindness of God magnifies his power and goodness for others to see. David it is not Kent content for a personal praise session. He wants people to join him in public praise. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And thirdly and finally, affliction met with the Spirit's illuminating aid grips our hearts with a glimpse of our returning king. Here's what I want you to see. At the end of Psalm 34, we arrive where we began with a twist. 
Psalm 34 was written by an anointed king who pretended to be insane to save himself from death. But a thousand years later, another king, a true king, came to earth not to pretend that he was something he was not, but to actually become something that he was not. Sin for us. Sin for us. He did not pretend on the cross. He provided atonement at the cross for your sin and for mine. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what blows my mind of Psalm 34. Jesus entered into affliction and instead of escaping with his life, he delivered his life unto death that by the power of resurrection, he might deliver your life and mine from death itself forever. That's something to sing about. That's something to share about. Ultimately, the end of Psalm 34 points us to Jesus Christ. Not to David hiding in a cave, but to Jesus Christ who is the cave for you and for me. Jesus who endured the greatest affliction for us and experienced the greatest deliverance, resurrection for us as well. This is a song that you and I can sing by the mercies and goodness of God, Barry and Cheryl, today, every day, because God is always, always good and his mercy never expires. If Christ is your cave, would you magnify the Lord with me today? Let's pray. Our Father in God, we, we, we fail to have the words to express our heart of thanks and give, uh, thanksgiving to you. We have received so much, Lord, from you. This has been such a rich summer of lingering in various psalms to be reminded of your, your sweetness and your power and your sovereignty, of your deliverance and of your presence with us in our labor and work. Today, O oh God, we just simply pray that if there is somebody destitute, distressed, and a debtor out here in this congregation, help them to realize, Lord, there's room in the cave for them. Come hide out in Jesus with this church. Come hide out and grow in your faith until our King returns for us. Come and be delivered from Saul on the one hand and Achish on the other, whoever they might be for your life. Christ still redeems. He lives today to, to rescue and deliver us. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are they who find their refuge in Him. 